Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and while you're finding your place there, if you would also find 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 3, okay? But our main text will be 2 Corinthians chapter 2, a resurrection gospel. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? A resurrection gospel. Paul says to Timothy there, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not, cha- is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Look down at verse 20 now. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Father, we thank you so much for the resurrection gospel that we have to preach. That your son came to this earth, lived a perfect sinless life, and went to the cross, and he died for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Lord, we celebrate that this Easter Sunday, and we celebrate it every single day in our lives. We thank you that today Christ is at your right hand, and he's making intercession for us. And one day, he's coming back for us. God, may we be ready. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want you to listen to how Dr. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell introduce 2 Timothy chapter 2 in in their commentary on this book. They write, and and I quote, It is apparent from the Old Testament that remembering the great acts of God is essential for the well-being of God's children. In fact, God is very directive about this. They give the example, first off, of the Passover. On the night before the Exodus, when God instituted the Passover rite as a perpetual ceremony in Israel, He instructed Moses saying the following. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our homes. 
every year as the Jewish people remember the Passover, it's to serve as a reminder as to how God saved them and delivered them out of Egypt. And then there's the giving of the law where Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God gave the Ten Commandments. And later on in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in what is known as the Shema where they say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You remember what he says next? And these commands that I give you today shall always be in your hearts. You shall remember them, and you shall teach them to your children, and you shall talk about them when you sit in your homes and when you walk by the way. Never forget. And then a third example in the Old Testament, and maybe the one that most people remember the best, is when Joshua was leading the children of Israel into the promised land, they were crossing the Jordan. And the Bible tells us from the time that their feet stepped down into the Jordan and God parted the waters, the priests were to take up stones. They were to take up 12 stones, one stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when they got to Gilgal in the promised land, they were to set up a monument of these stones. And God said, I want you to set up this monument so that when your children ask you later on, when your sons and daughters say, why are these stones here? What is this monument all about? That you shall remember the great acts of God. When God led you those 40 years through the wilderness, led you across the Jordan River and brought you to this promised land. And so the people of God were to remember Clearly, there are things that God wants His people to never forget. And as we remember these things and celebrate these things, they are intended to strengthen our faith. We remember the mighty deeds that God has always done in behalf of His people, and it strengthens our faith. Now, folks, as we think today about the Easter story, clearly the resurrection of Jesus Christ fits into that category of things that God has done that we are never to forget. Nobody can read the New Testament without observing the passion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that those things are the essentials to the gospel. Those are cardinal doctrines of our faith. There are other things that are non-essentials, but certainly the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is something regarding our faith that we dare not forget. Because those are the doctrines that our faith is built upon. Now the Apostle Paul, perhaps more than any others, majors on the theme of the resurrection in his letters. A perfect example is the text that we've read this morning out of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, as he pens this letter to Timothy, he's very much aware of the fact that his life is almost over. Paul is undergoing his second imprisonment. The book of Acts closes with his first imprisonment. 
But as soon as he got out of uh, jail the first time for preaching the gospel, it wasn't long before he was arrested again. He wasn't a criminal. All he was doing was going about the Roman world back then, and he was preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Because of that, he had been put in a cold, dark dungeon in Rome. And he knows that this time he is probably not going to be delivered. And indeed he wasn't. The Roman emperor Nero had Paul's head chopped off. And as Paul writes 2 Timothy, it's clear that what he is doing is he is passing the baton on to Timothy. He wants Timothy to continue the missionary work that Paul has started. And as Timothy continues this work, there are some things that he dare not forget. He says in verse 8 here, Remember, Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. In other words, Timothy is always remember that Jesus is alive. God dealt with our sin at the cross. He defeated, he, he defeated death and he opened the way for us into heaven through the resurrection. And that fact alone ought to give us a sense of courage and victory in our lives. I want us to see three things this morning. First of all, the Christian mandate. Secondly, a common danger. And thirdly, a celebrated conviction. First of all, the Christian mandate. Read with me again, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead of the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Folks, we are to remember in the church there are some things that we are to remember just like in the Old Testament there were things that they were to remember. And what are we supposed to remember? We're supposed to remember Jesus Christ. And what are we to remember about Jesus Christ? We are to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Paul says, that's my gospel, that is the gospel, that is the good news. Now folks, why is that so important? Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15 and pick up reading with me in verse 1. Paul says, therefore I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, Again, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, and some have fallen asleep. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity would simply have to take its place alongside of all the other human philosophies and religions. But folks, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of what God has done for us, you see, religion is about man reaching up to God and trying to do something to to bring himself up to God's level. But in Christianity, God has come to us in the person of Christ. And he's bore our sin. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. That makes Christianity distinctive from every other religion or human philosophy. Now Paul lived in a day like our day today. Paul lived in a day when the gospel, even more so than our day, was being attacked. 
So he says to the Corinthians, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain this whole thing to you again. I'm going to talk to you about what the gospel is about. And that's what he, uh, he proceeds to do in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's take a moment to think about that. What is the gospel? We know that it climaxes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but what exactly is the gospel? Well, Paul points out here there are three essential elements involved in it. Number one, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he points out that Christ died for our sin. That's an essential to the gospel. We're sinners. We need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. Romans 1.16, Paul says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And you hear God's truth and you yield your life to it and you embrace it. And what does it do? It brings about salvation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But Paul goes on in in Romans 1.18 to say what men usually do. What do men do? They suppress the truth. They suppress the truth of the gospel. They suppress it in unrighteousness. And and the result of all of that is that we end up under the wrath of God. The word that is used there of wrath is the word orge. Thumos would be a wrath of God, a a sudden outburst of his wrath. But orge is God's anger that builds up slowly over time over man's sin. Orge refers to a very just and holy anger of God. Not an anger like our anger, but a holy anger. And the Bible says every one of us at some point in time in our lives, we have been under the orge, the just wrath of God. Theologian J.I. Packer writes, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both testaments emphasize the reality and the terror of God's wrath. And the New Testament is clear that we have all at some point shared in that fate. The pagan man, the religious man alike. We've sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We're in deep trouble. All of us, all of us have been in that point of being in deep, deep trouble. And perhaps somebody here this morning still is. Because you've never come to Christ. We're in deep trouble and we need to understand that. You see, before we can understand the glorious good news of the gospel, we need to understand the bad news of it first. We're guilty. But that's where God stepped in. Turn over to Romans chapter 3, beginning there in verse 21. I want to read a paragraph here, verse 21 down through verse 28. Uh, The great reformer Martin Luther said that this paragraph right here is probably the most important portion of Scripture in all of the New Testament. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins." It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Christ died to take away our sin. Look at that word in verse 25, that word propitiation. Now, I just bet you that there's not a person in here this past week that has used that word in your common everyday vocabulary, propitiation. But folks, it's one of the most important theological words in the New Testament. To propitiate means to appease someone, to do something to take away their wrath and the punishment that they were going to give. Now, normally to propitiate would mean that you were to offer to the offended party whatever it was that was necessary to make things right. But folks, here's where we have a problem. Because again, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. What am I in my sinful state going to offer to God to appease His wrath? There is nothing that I have that I can offer to Him. And so what is the gospel? The gospel is that God in His love and grace, knowing this, He Himself offered the sacrifice that would appease His just wrath and that would take away our sin. God, the offended party, the one who would normally be appeased by someone else's gift, he stepped forward, he sent his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God sent his son to be the propitiation. God offered what was necessary to make me and you right and holy in his sight. Now, folks, that's grace. Romans 5, 8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died taking away your sin, my sin, my punishment, your punishment, and he perfectly satisfied the justice of a holy God. Well, that's the first essential in the gospel. The second essential Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 is that after Christ died for our sin, what did he do next? He was buried. Now, what's the significance in pointing that out? That he was really dead. Christ truly died. This wasn't make-believe stuff. Christ literally died on the cross for your sin and my sin. We know that the Romans were experts at execution. And before they took Jesus off the cross, they wanted to make certain he was dead. So they stuck the spear in his side. And when they did so, the Bible tells us that blood and water both ran out. 
showing that death had occurred. The, the different elements of the blood had already begun to separate the way they do at death. Christ was dead. But then the third essential in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15 is that Christ was raised on the third day. And because he was raised on the third day, he has opened the way into the presence of God. All of those who are in Christ not only have their sins atoned for, but Christ has opened your way into the very presence of God. He's defeated death in the grave and he has given to you and me eternal life. Folks, again, that's the gospel in a nutshell right there. There are other parts of the gospel that are non-essential. For example, we don't all agree on things like ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is church government or church, uh, church polity. We don't all agree on that. And that's why we have all the different denominations that we have today because we don't all agree on ecclesiology. That's a non-essential. We don't all agree on eschatology. Eschatology is a study of end time events. What's the end going to look like? What's God going to do at the end in, in certain order? We don't all agree on that. But we must all agree on what the gospel is. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, we've got to agree on that to the fact that if you run into somebody this week who says that they are a Christian, and yet, at the same time, if they deny the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's one thing that you can be certain of. They are not a Christian. Folks, we're not, we're not a Christian just because we say that we're a Christian. Okay? Jesus said many would say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, and he'd say, depart from me. I never knew you. You're, somebody's not a Christian just because they say they're a Christian. Somebody who denies the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I don't care what they say, they're not a believer. Now, after presenting the gospel, Paul moves on again, 1 Corinthians 15. Don't want to confuse you with multiple texts, but he moves on here to defend the gospel beginning in verse 5. He talks beginning in verse 5 about all the different appearances that Jesus appeared to after he was raised. And the implication is most of them are still alive. You can go talk to them yourself, he's saying to the Corinthians. It's like you're saying, you don't believe me? You don't believe me that he's alive? Go talk to the witnesses yourselves. Go hear their eyewitness testimony. And then beginning in verse 12, he appeals to the logic of all this. Some of them were saying there's no resurrection of the dead. They were saying when you die, you die. Paul said if that's your position, if your position is there's no resurrection of the dead, then you would have to conclude logically then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, there'd be some serious consequences to that. Number one, that would mean that the gospel itself means absolutely nothing. Nothing. Secondly, our preaching of it would mean nothing. Because preaching proclaims the good news of Jesus who conquered sin and the grave. But if the grave's not conquered, there's really no good news to proclaim. There's no hope whatsoever that I could stand up here and give to people. 
Preaching would be nothing more than meaningless words without any kind of good news to deliver. Paul says our preaching would be empty. That was a word, kinos, used of vessels, a vessel that everything would be poured out of it, no contents whatsoever. It was empty, and Paul says, that's how our preaching would be. It would be empty, it would be devoid of any substance whatsoever. When used of men, it means that they were empty-handed. They had nothing to offer, no gift in their hand. I think of a little boy one time that came in after playing and he had a stomach ache. And his mom said, you got a stomach ache because you've been playing all day and you've, you've skipped your meal. You've not eaten a single thing all day. Your stomach's empty. That's why you got such a stomach ache. You need to put something in it. Later that day, the preacher came over for a visit. The little boy said, uh, preacher, how are you doing today? He said, well, to be honest with you, I don't feel so good. The little boy said, why? He said, well, I got a headache. Little boy said, you know why? It's because it's empty. You need to put something in it. <laughs> That's how our preaching would be without the resurrection. It would be gutted of all of its substance. And Paul goes on to say, your faith would also mean nothing. Your faith would be likewise, kinos, empty without any substance. On top of that, he says, you'd be a false witness. And it's more severe than saying you'd be, uh, you'd be just mistaken. No, it means you'd be a liar. You'd be a deceiver. I'd be a deceiver. Stand up here preaching about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection if he wasn't raised from the dead. And that would mean that we would be still in our sins. And consequently, the dead would be eternally doomed. And finally, he says, that would mean that the saints are to be pitied most of all because we would be nothing more than a bunch of sad cases running around this earth, building churches, going on mission trips, and believing in a phony afterlife. Like Ernest Hemingway said, he was an unbeliever. He expressed his hopelessness. He said, it's as though we're just a colony of ants living on the end of a burning log. That's how we would be without the resurrection of Christ. We'd just be fodder for the late night comedians. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, don't ever forget these essentials about the gospel. Remember the resurrection. Now, folks, the same admonition is extended to you and I as God's people today. You see, the primary message of the Scripture is not simply a message of self-esteem or trying to use the Bible as some kind of self-help study guide. That's how some people want to reduce the Bible down to that day, just a self-help study guide. But folks, the Bible is first and foremost God's message to man about redemption in Christ. It tells us that we are lost. Without Jesus Christ, we are lost and we would be on our way to an eternity without Christ. We would be doomed. We would be in deep, deep trouble. But the gospel states that God loved us too much to leave us in that condition. He sent His Son so that we would have a way out of our doomed condition. 
From Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, that's the message. The message of redemption. And the central figure of the Bible is the Lord Jesus. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget the message that we preach as believers. Now, second thing, I want you to see a common danger. A common danger. He says there in verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Down in verse 20, he says, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. He goes on in verse 22 to say, so flee youthful passions and and pursue righteousness. In other words, what he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, if you get away from the gospel, it's so easy to digress and get off on other roads that don't do anything. In fact, even roads that can cause damage to the listeners. Like I said before, the the Bible is not just a self-help book. Tragically, we've got so many feel-good doctors today who open the Word of God, read a passage, lay it aside, and then will just simply want to reduce the Scripture down telling you 12 ways to be a success. Folks, that's so man-centered. Again, it's not that the Bible doesn't address any of these issues that have to do with our lives. The, The Bible talks about... You know, our relationships, it talks about our marriages, it talks about our parenting, it talks about our finances. It it, it does give us ways to live a wise and godly life. But again, what he's warning Timothy of here is don't get off course and don't water down the gospel message until you make it anything and everything but the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Keep first things first. First things first. Folks, Easter is a time to remember all of this. Do you understand that? I want us to all understand that today. Easter is a wonderful time for us to reiterate in our own minds and hearts what the gospel message is all about. Because the fact of the matter is, without the gospel, without the life of Christ... You and I were deeply doomed. Do we understand that? We were deeply doomed. In fact, Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 16 about a man who died and he was separated from God. Jesus said this man was in torment and and begged that somebody would come from the other side just with a drop of water to put on, on its tongue. Jesus himself said that the the way to eternal life is narrow and few that find it, but the road to destruction is wide and, and many that travel it. Jesus talked about the severity of dying without having eternal life. We need to understand at Easter without the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would be absolutely doomed. 
And God rescued you. God rescued me in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did for us in Christ what we could never do for ourselves. Had he not died for my sin on the cross and been my propitiation, had he not done that for me, I would have no hope in this world whatsoever. No peace, no hope. And so we need to avoid the danger of making the gospel less than what it is. Folks, God didn't need us. God didn't need me. God didn't need you. In eternity past, all the way to eternity future, God's just fine without me. We believe in what theologians call the aseity uh, uh, of God, that he is 100% self-sufficient and satisfied in himself. He didn't need me to add to his fullness in some way. He rescued me. He rescued you simply because he loves us. He loves us. Folks, the message of Easter is this radical plan, rescue plan that God carried out for us. Paul recognized to Timothy that the danger would be to forget all of that stuff. He goes into chapter 3 saying, understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and proud and arrogant and, and boastful and disobedient to their parents and ungrateful and unholy and heartless and unappeasable and slanderous and without any self-control. He goes on in chapter 4 to say, Timothy, you you need to preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. For the day's coming that men won't accept sound doctrine. They'll just want to hear, have their ears tickled. They'll want the gospel reduced down to something shallow. And the New Testament is saying, church, we can't ever afford to do that. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Third thing I want you to see. A celebrated conviction. Again, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The resurrection validates all of the words and the work of Christ. I want you to think of what it validates. It validate, validates His word because Jesus told His disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. When I get into Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be crucified and put in a tomb. But on the third day, I'll rise again. Remember, he compared himself to Jonah about how Jonah was in the belly of the fish and he would be in the belly of the earth three days, but he would rise again. Well, folks, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then guess what? He would have been shown to have been a false witness of himself. He would have been a liar, not the Lord. So the resurrection validated his word. It also validated his sinless life. You see, the scripture says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. You put a sinless man, a perfect man in the ground and death couldn't hold him. The fact that death could not hold Christ was evidence that his life was perfect and sinless. It validated that. 
It's no wonder the resurrection has been perhaps one of the most attacked doctrines through the history of the church. If you were the devil and you wanted to undermine Christianity, where would you start? You would start by attacking the resurrection. But I want you to think of all the evidences that we have of the resurrection. I want you to think of the fact of the Lord's day. Here were, here were Hebrews who for thousands of years held tenaciously to worship on the Sabbath, the seventh day, because that's what God had instructed them to do. But all of a sudden, these first Christians who were Jewish believers changed the day of worship from the Sabbath to the Lord's day, the first day of the week. Something had to account for them doing that. And indeed it was something, the resurrection. Then you have Easter. Easter replaced Passover. Here again, they celebrated Passover. But, but the Easter celebration of the resurrection goes back again all the way to the early Christians. The first Christians were Jews. And they replaced the Passover celebration with celebrating Easter. Something had to account for that. Then there's Christian art in the catacombs of Rome from the hands of some of the very first persecuted Christians. We find carved into the walls there depictions of Christ's resurrection. These would have been folks living at that time, some of whom again would have been witnesses of it. Then there's Christian hymnody, hymns of the early believers celebrating the fact of the resurrection. Then there's the church. How did the largest institution known to man come into being? It's many times larger than the entire Roman Empire ever was. How did it come into being? What accounts for the church? Something had to have happened. Then you have all those witnesses of 1 Corinthians 15, 500 at one time. One thing you certainly don't have is 500 at one time having the identical hallucination. It wasn't a hallucination at all. They saw the risen Lord. Then there are the apostles themselves. Before the resurrection, after Jesus was crucified, they locked themselves up in the upper room. They were scared to death of the authorities. They thought everything they'd been living for was now dead. But the moment Jesus Christ appeared to them alive, these scared-to-death disciples, they're out on the streets and they're proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they're standing up boldly to the authorities. Then you have the life of the Apostle Paul himself. The Apostle Paul was Rabbi Saul. He was rising in the ranks among Jewish rabbis. He hated the gospel message. He hated any talk about Jesus. He hated Christians. He was going to Damascus to, to grab all the Christians up that he could and bring them back to Jerusalem and have them put on trial and put in jail. And Christ appeared to him. The greatest persecutor of the church suddenly becomes the greatest propagator of the Christian faith. How do you explain the life of the Apostle Paul? All of these things, evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is alive. He's not dead. Why are you looking for the dead among the living? He's alive, just as he said. And because of that, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will come in and fellowship with him. Folks, I want you to understand what's in it for us, everything's in it for us. You and I have been rescued from death and hell. We've been forgiven in and through Christ. You say, well, preacher, you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. Whatever you've done, he can forgive. You have forgiveness. You have access into his presence. And the resurrection says to you today that Christ is able to come alongside of you in your life, give you strength and direction. If he were dead, he couldn't do that. And he says, not only remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, but he adds in there a touching little reminder, descended from David. In other words, while he's fully God, he's also fully man. The book of Hebrews says, because he was also a man who understands your your trials and tribulations in life, he's able to be a sympathetic high priest for you. He understands the difficulties you and I go through in life. He's not aloof and removed from us unable to understand what we go through in life. He's able to save you. He's able to transform your life. That's what the Easter message proclaims to us. A living Lord who's able to absolutely transform your life and my life. Aren't you glad of that? Several years ago, I heard the story of Paige Patterson, the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. He tells the story of when he was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And the church there had a dynamic college ministry to the University of Arkansas. And they, there was a revival going on on the campus there. And Dr. Patterson said they saw the number one atheist on the campus of the University of Arkansas. He got saved. And he came to Dr. Patterson and he said, Dr. Patterson, my mother is also an atheist. I'm concerned about her. I want her to experience Christ in her life. I want her to be saved. I want her to be transformed the way Christ has done that for me. Paige said, well, son, we'll pray for her, but if you'll give me her name and address, I'll also go around and knock on her door and I'll share the gospel with her. And he said, oh, Dr. Patterson, you can't do that. He said, why can't I do that? She'd kill you. Dr. Patterson, if you knew my mama, she'd beat you to death. And he wondered, what kind of woman is this? (laughs) Well, he told that young man, give me her name and address anyway. I'll take my chances. So he went around and he knocked on her door one day and he said, this woman answered the door. He said, if you could call her a woman, I mean, Goliath liveth. I mean, there was this, whoo, he... And rough, rough lady, he said, all of a sudden he understood what this student was saying about, my mama will kill you, she'll beat you to death. And he identified himself, who he was. 
And she said, didn't my son tell you I'm an atheist? Yeah. Didn't he tell you I hate Christians? Yeah. Didn't he tell you I hate preachers? Yes. Didn't he tell you I hate Baptists most of all? He said, he said, yes. He said, you know what? I'm not too fond of all of them either myself. She said, what? Didn't you just say you're one of them? He said, yes, ma'am. She said, you don't like them all either yourself? He said, no, ma'am. What? Well, if you'll invite me in and fix us a cup, cup of coffee, we'll sit down at your kitchen table and talk about it. She said, the audacity of you. You're going to knock on my door. You're going to invite yourself in my home, go in my kitchen, sit down, drink a cup of coffee at my table? He said, well, you want to know why? I said, I don't like them all either, right? She said, yeah, I, I do want to know that story. He said, well, invite me in for a cup of coffee. They were having their coffee. She said, tell me more about this. You don't, you don't particularly care for a lot of Christians either, a lot of Baptists? He said, no, ma'am. She said, but again, you're one of them. He said, ma'am, let me ask you something. Have you, have you been to any Baptist business meetings? <laughs> she said, no, sir, I can't say that I have. He said, well, I've been to hundreds of them. I've led hundreds of them. Have you ever seen the way some of those so-called Christians act at a business meeting? She said, no, again, never been. He said, some of them are mean. In fact, he said, some of them, I'm convinced they're not Christians. They don't know the Lord at all. She said, really? He said, yeah, I'm convinced of that. He said, I got a question for you, ma'am. Do you want to die and go to hell with all those mean Baptists who don't know the Lord? Or do you want to know how you can be saved and go to heaven with the good ones, the saved ones? She said, well, I certainly don't want to go to hell with the mean ones. <laughs> he said he opened his Bible to the book of Romans and walked her through the plan of salvation in the book of Romans. And there at her kitchen table, he led her to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus can transform an atheist. And he's able to do that because he lives. I'm grateful at Easter time, every Sunday of the year, every day of our lives, we have a resurrection gospel to preach. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? This morning, do you need Christ to transform your life? <clears throat> Folks, what a great time, Easter Sunday 2015, to yield your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what Jesus did for the Apostle Paul, what he did for Simon Peter, what he did for that woman that I just told you about, he can do the same for you. But you must come to him. Is he standing at the door of your heart knocking right now? Scripture says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Come to him. This morning, what are you doing with the Easter message? Do you talk about anything and everything else? What if we could record your conversation for an entire year 
Would there be any talk in your conversation about the death, the burial, and the resurrection, the transforming power of the Lord Jesus? Is that part of your vocabulary? If not, why not? Greatest message on the face of the earth. Maybe you need to pray, God, give me more boldness to share the Easter story. You know, the Bible says because he lives, he's able to come alongside of me and you. The the scripture says we can cast all of our care upon him because he cares for us. If he were dead, he couldn't do that. He'd have no power to help. But because he's alive, you can lay those trials and tribulations at his feet. And I'm, I'm not about to tell you this morning that he's going to remove all your troubles out of your life. He may have a purpose leaving them there. But what I am telling you is even if he leaves them there, he can help you through them. He can give you strength. Put those struggles at his feet. Father, we thank you so much that we have a gospel that is unlike anything else in this world. Help us to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And Lord, the days that we might be in trouble or discouraged, remind us that you're alive. And the Bible says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is able to work in us too. Help us to keep our eyes on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.